0: section 13 of the princess and curdie this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit librivox.org recording by lizzie driver the princess and curdie by george macdonald chapters 20 to 21 chapter 20 counterplotting Purdy was already sufficiently enlightened as to how things were going, to see that he must have the princess of one mind with him, and they must work together. It was clear that among those about the king there was a plot against him. For one thing they had agreed in a lie concerning himself, and it was plain also that the doctor was working out a design against the health and reason of his majesty, rendering the question of his life a matter of little moment. It was, in itself, sufficient to justify the worst fears. That the people outside the palace were ignorant of his majesty's condition. He believed those inside it also, the butler excepted, were ignorant of it as well. Doubtless his majesty's counsellors desired to alienate the hearts of his subjects from their sovereign. Curdie's idea was that they intended to kill the king, marry the princess to honour themselves, and found a new dynasty but whatever their purpose there was treason in the palace of the worst sort they were making and keeping the king incapable in order to effect that purpose the first thing to be seen to therefore was that his majesty should neither eat morsel nor drink drop of anything prepared for him in the palace could this have been managed without the princess Curdie would have preferred leaving her in ignorance of the horrors from which he sought to deliver her. He feared also the danger of her knowing, betraying itself to the evil eyes about her. But it must be risked, and she had always been a wise child. Another thing was clear to him, that with such traitors no terms of honour were either binding or possible, and that, short of lying, he might use any means to foil them, and he could not doubt that the old princess had sent him expressly to frustrate their plans. While he stood thinking thus with himself, the princess was earnestly watching the king, with looks of childish love and womanly tenderness, that went to Curdie's heart. Now and then, with a great fan of peacock feathers, she would fan him very softly. Now and then, seeing a cloud begin to gather upon the sky of his sleeping face— she would climb upon the bed, and bending to his ear, whisper into it, then draw back and watch again, generally to see the cloud disperse. In his deepest slumber the soul of the king lay open to the voice of his child, and that voice had power either to change the aspect of his visions, or, which was better still, to breathe hope into his heart and courage to endure them. Curdie came near and softly called her. I can't leave papa just yet, she returned in a low voice. I will wait, said Curdie, but I want very much to say something. In a few minutes she came to him where he stood under the lamp. Well, Curdie, what is it? she said. Princess, he replied. "'I want to tell you that I have found why your grandmother sent me.' "'Come this way, then,' she answered, "'where I can see the face of my king.' Curdie placed a chair for her in the spot she chose, "'where she would be near enough to mark any slightest change "'on her father's countenance. "'Yet where their low-voiced talk would not disturb him. "'There he sat down beside her and told her all the story.' "'how her grandmother had sent a good pigeon for him, "'and how she had instructed him, "'and sent him there without telling him what he had to do. "'Then he told her what he had discovered "'of the state of things generally in Quintstorm, "'and especially what he had heard and seen in the palace that night. "'Things are in a bad state enough,' he said in conclusion, "'lying and selfishness and inhospitality and dishonesty everywhere.' and to crown all, they speak with disrespect of the good king, and not a man knows he is ill. "'You frighten me dreadfully,' said Irene, trembling. "'You must be brave for your king's sake,' said Curdie. "'Indeed I will,' she replied, and turned a long loving look upon the beautiful face of her father. "'But what is to be done?' AND HOW AM I TO BELIEVE SUCH HORRIBLE THINGS OF DR. KELMAN?" MY DEAR PRINCESS, REPLIED CURDIE, YOU KNOW NOTHING OF HIM BUT HIS FACE AND HIS TONGUE, AND THEY ARE BOTH FALSE. EITHER YOU MUST BEWARE OF HIM, OR YOU MUST DOUBT YOUR GRANDMOTHER AND ME, FOR I TELL YOU, BY THE GIFT SHE GAVE ME OF TESTING HANDS, THAT THIS MAN IS A SNAKE. THAT ROUND BODY HE SHOWS IS BUT THE CASE OF A SERPENT. PERHAPS THE CREATURE LIES THERE, AS IN ITS NEST, coiled ROUND AND ROUND INSIDE. HORRIBLE, SAID IRENE. HORRIBLE, INDEED. BUT WE MUST NOT TRY TO GET RID OF HORRIBLE THINGS BY REFUSING TO LOOK AT THEM, AND SAYING THEY ARE NOT THERE. IS NOT YOUR BEAUTIFUL FATHER SLEEPING BETTER SINCE HE HAD THE WINE? YES. DOES HE ALWAYS SLEEP BETTER AFTER HAVING IT? SHE REFLECTED AN INSTANT. "'No, always worse. Till to-night,' she answered. "'Then remember, that was the wine I got him, not what the butler drew. "'Nothing that passes through any hand in this house except yours or mine "'must henceforth, till he is well, reach his Majesty's lips.' "'But how, dear Curdie?' said the princess, almost crying. "'That we must contrive,' answered Curdie. "'I know how to take care of the wine, but for his food, now I must think.' "'He hardly takes any,' said the princess, with a pathetic shake of her little head, which Curdie had almost learned to look for. "'The more need,' he replied, "'there should be no poison in it.' Irene shuddered. "'As soon as he has honest food, he will begin to grow better, and you must be just as careful with yourself, princess.' "'Curdy went on. "'For you don't know when they may begin to poison you, too. "'There's no fear of me. "'Don't talk about it,' said Irene. "'The good food. "'How are we to get it, Curdie? "'That is the whole question.' "'I am thinking hard,' answered Curdie. "'The good food. "'Let me see. "'Let me see. "'Such servants as I saw below "'are sure to have the best of everything for themselves.' "'I will go and see what I can find on their table.' "'The Chancellor sleeps in the house, "'and he and the master of the King's horse "'always have their supper together, "'in a room off the Great Hall, "'to the right as you go down the stairs,' "'said Irene. "'I would go with you, but I dare not leave my father. "'Alas! "'He scarcely ever takes more than a mouthful. "'I can't think how he lives. "'And the very thing he would like, "'and often asks for, "'a bit of bread,' I CAN HARDLY EVER GET FOR HIM. DR. KELMAN HAS FORBIDDEN IT, AND SAYS IT IS NOTHING LESS THAN POISON TO HIM. BREAD AT LEAST HE SHALL HAVE, SAID CURDIE, AND THAT, WITH THE HONEST WINE, WILL DO AS WELL AS ANYTHING, I DO BELIEVE. I WILL GO AT ONCE AND LOOK FOR SOME. BUT I WANT YOU TO SEE Lena FIRST, AND KNOW HER, LEST, COMING UPON HER BY ACCIDENT AT ANY TIME, YOU SHOULD BE FRIGHTENED. I SHOULD LIKE MUCH TO SEE HER, said the princess. Warning her not to be startled by her ugliness, he went to the door and called her. She entered, creeping with downcast head, and dragging her tail over the floor behind her. Curdie watched the princess as the frightful creature came nearer and nearer. One shudder went from head to foot, and next instant she stepped to meet her. Lena dropped flat on the floor, and covered her face with two big paws. It went to the heart of the princess. In a moment she was on her knees beside her, stroking her ugly head and patting her all over. "'Good dog! Dear ugly dog,' she said. Lena whimpered. "'I believe,' said Curdie, "'from what your grandmother told me, "'that Lena is a woman, and that she was naughty, "'but is now growing good.' Lena had lifted her head while Irene was caressing her. Now she dropped it again between her paws, but the princess took it in her hands and kissed the forehead betwixt the gold-green eyes. "'Shall I take her with me or leave her?' asked Curdie. "'Leave her, poor dear,' said Irene, and Curdie, knowing the way now, went without her. He took his way first to the room the princess had spoken of, AND THERE ALSO WERE THE REMAINS OF SUPPER, BUT NEITHER THERE NOR IN THE KITCHEN COULD he FIND A SCRAP OF PLAIN, WHOLESOME-LOOKING BREAD. SO HE RETURNED AND TOLD HER THAT AS SOON AS IT WAS LIGHT HE WOULD GO INTO THE CITY FOR SOME, AND ASKED HER FOR A HANDKERCHIEF TO TIE IT IN. IF HE COULD NOT BRING IT HIMSELF, HE WOULD SEND IT BY Lena, WHO COULD KEEP OUT OF SIGHT BETTER THAN HE, AND AS SOON AS ALL WAS QUIET AT NIGHT HE WOULD COME TO HER AGAIN. HE ALSO ASKED HER TO TELL THE KING THAT HE WAS IN THE HOUSE. HIS HOPE LAY IN THE FACT THAT BAKERS EVERYWHERE GO TO WORK EARLY. BUT IT WAS YET MUCH TOO EARLY. SO HE PERSUADED THE PRINCESS TO LIE DOWN, PROMISING TO CALL HER IF THE KING SHOULD STIR. CHAPTER Twenty One: THE LOAF HIS MAJESTY SLEPT VERY QUIETLY. THE DAWN HAD GROWN ALMOST DAY, AND STILL Curdie LINGERED unwilling to disturb the princess at last however he called her and she was in the room in a moment she had slept she said and felt quite fresh delighted to find her father still asleep and so peacefully she pushed her chair close to the bed and sat down with her hands in her lap curdie got his mattock from where he had hidden it behind a great mirror and went to the cellar followed by lena They took some breakfast with them as they passed through the hall, and as soon as they had eaten it went out the back way. At the mouth of the passage, Curdie seized the rope, drew himself up and pushed away the shutter, and entered the dungeon. Then he swung the end of the rope to Lena, and she caught it in her teeth. When her master said, "'Now, Lena,' she gave a great spring, and he ran away with the end of the rope as fast as ever he could." "'and such a spring she had made, that, by the time he had to bear her weight, "'she was within a few feet of the hole. "'The instant she got a paw through, she was all through. "'Apparently their enemies were waiting till hunger should have cowed them, "'for there was no sign of any attempt having been made to open the door. "'A blow or two of Curdie's mattock drove the shattered lock clean from it.' and telling Lena to wait there till he came back and let no one in, he walked out into the silent street, and drew the door to behind him. He could hardly believe it was not yet a whole day, since he had been thrown in there with his hands tied at his back. Down the town he went, walking in the middle of the street, that, if anyone saw him, he might see he was not afraid, and hesitate to rouse an attack on him. As to the dogs, ever since the death of their two companions, a shadow that looked like a mattock was enough to make them scamper. As soon as he reached the archway of the city, he turned to reconnoitre to the baker's shop, and, perceiving no sign of movement, waited there watching for the first. After about an hour the door opened, and the baker's man appeared with a pail in his hand. He went to a pump that stood in the street— and, having filled his pail, returned with it to the shop. Curdie stole after him, found the door on the latch, opened it very gently, peeped in, saw nobody, and entered. Remembering perfectly from what shelf the baker's wife had taken the loaf, she said was the best, and seeing just one upon it, he seized it, laid the price of it on the counter, and sped softly out and up the street. Once more in the dungeon beside Lena, his first thought was to fasten up the door again, which would have been easy. So many iron fragments of all sorts and sizes lay about. But he bethought himself that, if he left it as it was, and they came to find him, they would conclude at once that they had made their escape by it, and would look no farther so as to discover the hole. He therefore merely pushed the door closed and left it, THEN, ONCE MORE CAREFULLY ARRANGING THE EARTH BEHIND THE SHUTTER, SO THAT IT SHOULD AGAIN FALL WITH IT, HE RETURNED TO THE CELLAR. AND NOW HE HAD TO CONVEY THE LOAF TO THE PRINCESS. IF HE COULD VENTURE TO TAKE IT HIMSELF, WELL, IF NOT, HE WOULD SEND Lena. HE CREPT TO THE DOOR OF THE SERVANT'S HALL, AND FOUND THE SLEEPERS BEGINNING TO STIR. ONE SAID IT WAS TIME TO GO TO BED, ANOTHER THAT HE WOULD GO TO THE CELLAR INSTEAD and have a mug of wine to waken him up. While a third challenged a fourth to give him his revenge at some game or other. "'Oh, hang your losses,' answered his companion. "'You'll soon pick up twice as much about the house "'if you but keep your eyes open.' Perceiving there would be risks in attempting to pass through, and reflecting that the porters in the great hall would probably be awake also, Curdie went back to the cellar, took Irene's handkerchief with the loaf in it, "'tied it round Lena's neck, "'and told her to take it to the princess. "'Using every shadow and every shelter, "'Lena slid through the servants "'like a shapeless terror through a guilty mind, "'and so, by corridor and great hall, "'up the stair to the king's chamber. "'Irene trembled a little "'when she saw a glide soundless in "'across the silent dusk of the morning "'that filtered through the heavy drapery of the windows.' BUT SHE RECOVERED HERSELF AT ONCE WHEN SHE SAW THE BUNDLE ABOUT HER NECK, FOR IT BOTH ASSURED HER OF CURDIE'S SAFETY, AND GAVE A HOPE OF HER FATHER'S. SHE UNTIED IT WITH JOY, AND Lena STOLE AWAY, SILENT AS SHE HAD COME. HER JOY WAS THE GREATER THAT THE KING HAD WAKED UP A LITTLE BEFORE, AND EXPRESSED A DESIRE FOR FOOD. NOT THAT HE FELT EXACTLY HUNGRY, HE SAID, AND YET HE WANTED SOMETHING. "'if only he might have a piece of nice fresh bread.' "'Irene had no knife, but with eager hands "'she broke a great piece from the loaf "'and poured out a full glass of wine. "'The king ate and drank, enjoyed the bread and wine very much, "'and instantly fell asleep again. "'It was hours before the lazy people brought their breakfast. "'When it came, Irene crumbled a little about, "'threw some into the fireplace,' "'and managed to make the tray look just as usual. "'In the meantime, down below in the cellar, Curdie was lying in the hollow "'between the upper sides of two of the great casks, "'the warmest place he could find. "'Lena was watching. "'She lay at his feet across the two casks, "'and did her best so to arrange a huge tail "'that it should be a warm coverlid for a master. "'By and by Dr. Kelman called to see his patient.' and now that Irene's eyes were opened, she saw clearly enough that he was both annoyed and puzzled at finding his majesty rather better. He pretended, however, to congratulate him, saying he believed he was quite fit to see the Lord Chamberlain. He wanted his signature to something important. Only he must not strain his mind to understand it, whatever it might be. If his majesty did, he would not be answerable for the consequences— The king said he would see the Lord Chamberlain, and the doctor went. Then Irene gave him more bread and wine, and the king ate and drank, and smiled a feeble smile, the first real one she had seen for many a day. He said he felt much better, and would soon be able to take matters into his own hands again. He had a strange, miserable feeling, he said, that things were going terribly wrong, although he could not tell how. Then the princess told him that Curdie had come, and that at night, when all was quiet, for nobody in the palace must know, he would pay his majesty a visit. Her great-great-grandmother had sent him, she said. The king looked strangely upon her, but the strange look passed into a smile clearer than the first, and Irene's heart throbbed with delight. End of section 13